The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to another episode of Francis Watch, sponsored by our sponsor, Novus Ordo Watch. We have as our guest, always, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, uh, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Cicada, Seminary Professor at the same seminary, as well as Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, Father, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. You're most welcome. Nice to be here as usual. We covered the Amazon Synod document last time, at least in in some part. It started to create more of a ruckus since the time that we had our last recording. We don't have a new document out this time for our so-called Acts of the Magisterium section, but we do have some effects that we'll talk about later on in the episode. The, The first... I, I use the word shocking, but it's it's never really shocking with Francis. It's just the, 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 the latest from Francis was the relics of St. Peter given to the so-called Orthodox. This is a, a saint, perhaps, that the Orthodox are not particularly fond of, Your Excellency and Father, but they, they receive the relics anyway. Oh, I think they would be fond of St. Peter. It's just, uh, you know, his primacy over the See of Constantinople would be a whole other question. Yes, no, I mean, they, oh, St. Peter, you know, I mean, no, I, I think it's, it's the primacy of the successor of St. Peter that is the bugaboo. Uh, but it makes no sense in any case to give relics of St. Peter to Constantinople because St. Peter never went to Constantinople. Constantinople at the time being the little village of Byzantium. Uh, that you wouldn't visit any more than you would visit Squeedunk, Iowa, or something like that. Uh, it just was nothing until the Emperor Constantine came and built it up in the early 300s. So, you know, it, you know, for them to have St. Peter just, and here they reject the authority of St. Peter, the whole thing is an absurdity and, and a, an empty, stupid gesture. The exact quote, Your Excellency, from Francis was, I no longer live in the Apostolic Palace, I never use this chapel, I never offer the Holy Mass here, and we have St. Peter's relics in the Basilica itself. So it will be better if they will be kept in Constantinople. This is my gift to the Church of Constantinople. Please take this reliquary and give it to my brother patriarch Bartholomew. This gift is not for me, it is a gift from God. Archbishop Job admitted that this decision of Pope Francis was a surprise to everyone. This is an extraordinary and unexpected event that we did not expect. The relics of the Holy Apostle Peter were always kept in Rome, where they were the purpose of pilgrimage. The Orthodox Church has never asked for them, since they never belonged to the Church of Constantinople. This time we do not speak of a return of relics to their original place. This time the relics are being presented as a gift. This prophetic gesture is another huge step on the path to concrete unity. Not entirely certain why this would be a step on the path to concrete unity, Your Excellency and Father. It's just another, 
gesture that that doesn't do anything. Now, you know, the Korean ecumenism, I think that's 1964 or 65. Nothing has happened since that time. Nothing in 54 years. There has not been a single reconciliation of a Protestant or Orthodox group. For 65 years of doing these gestures, of having uh, services with them, which are abominations against the First Commandment, SCC, all of the other junk that they have done for all of these decades and decades. And there has not been a single move among any of those Orthodox groups to join the Roman Church. Uh, so this is just one more. Paul VI, if you recall, gave the uh, banners of Lepanto back to the Turks, and the Turks said they didn't want them, uh, you know, in this gesture to Islam. And it's just, you know, the, the, these modernists fall all over themselves do it with these gestures, and, and the others just look at them and say, you know, we're not interested. Whereas in the past, before Vatican II, the Catholic Church, in many cases, reconciled to itself uh, Eastern schismatics. Uh, the Ruthenians, for example, the uh, Syro Malabars, um, the uh, Chaldeans uh, were, were uh, and the, the church bent over backwards to accommodate them. And, and it took their entire clergy, uh, which was you know, an unusual thing, uh, in order to accommodate them. I mean, the, the, the real you might say ecumenism, I don't like to use that word, but the Catholic Church showed great interest in reconciling these people and also made compromises as much as they could, as much as was reasonable, in order to bring them back. And that's the history of the Catholic Church. These people just make these dumb gestures and nothing happens. Those uh, processes of uh, reunion before Vatican II that uh, you described, Your Excellency, uh, were, uh, I think, only possible because the church knew that, that doctrine mattered, and there had to be agreement on, uh, the, uh, on the truths of the Catholic faith. After Vatican II, the whole idea is that, well, doctrine doesn't matter, that all religions are, uh, are means of salvation. So why should, a, uh, why should an Orthodox outfit uh, join? It simply doesn't make any uh, logical sense, whereas before you had the unity of the faith that was holding the church together, now you don't have that. And even in the, even in uh, more conservative or traditional, shall we say, orthodox circles, they certainly realize that, that, that as regards doctrine, Vatican II has led to apostasy. Well, I think for for the Novus Ordo I, uh, conservatives, I think this has to at least be one more hand-wringing gesture, but maybe just a finger-wringing. It doesn't merit the entire hand, because at this point, it's, it's still passe. Mm-hmm. It's been done so many times before. And from, from the point of view of the modernists, the important idea here, uh, I suppose even if uh, they do not achieve the goal of... Uh, what they call some sort of a a concrete reunion, the idea is that you're running down the, uh, symbolically running down the uh, 
the centrality of the papacy because of its identification with St. Peter. And so the, this, this um, schismatic bishop naturally is going to be sort of surprised by it. But uh, on the modernist side, the idea of giving away these relics is blowing them off, saying that what they represent is really not important. We don't think that way anymore. It's like uh, the monster, Paul VI, uh, doing away with the tiara and uh, going through that little ceremony. And the, the purpose of that is uh, to show that uh, the doctrinal teaching of the church on the centrality of the papacy is not important anymore. We don't really believe or we don't really follow that anymore. That was exaggerated. And so you, you get this step by step, and then you get uh, uh, Bergoglio, uh, for instance, after his election in the um, Honorario Pontificio, uh, Pontificio, the official Vatican uh, directory, uh, taking uh, off the first page uh, of all of the titles of the Pope except Bishop of Rome. Uh, that is uh, 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 that shows their program shows part of their goal. You also have to remember that they consider the schismatic churches to be um, um, particular churches, which means that they are dioceses, and this all goes under the umbrella of partial communion. That uh, and wherever you have a valid Eucharist, there Christ is present. I'm quoting Ratzinger. That uh, that they uh, they're the only thing that you know is this little 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 glitch that that is still remaining. That is the recognition of the primacy of the Roman Pontiff. That's really the only thing holding us back. As Father says, doctrine doesn't matter. So you know that's you know a, a little thing that's got to be ironed out. But basically, they're they're all part of the the big Church of Christ. Uh, you have to remember that too. So why not send those relics over? You know, he's a brother patriarch. Yeah. Yes, that phrase, Brother Patriarch, is very, very telling in well, there. It's all the emphatic into ecumenism, which is apostasy, essentially. Well, along with ecumenism, earlier in September in Maputo, which is part of Mozambique, on the 5th of September, Francis addressed a, a, a large audience, which had, it was a mixed audience, had Christians, Muslims, and, and Hindus. And he said to them, I thank the members of different religious confessions who have joined us and those who do not belong to any particular religious tradition. I suppose that's the uh, spiritual, not religious crowd. Thank you for encouraging one another to live and experience today the challenge of peace as the family that we are. You are experiencing that all of us are necessary. With our differences, we are all necessary. Our differences are necessary. Is that true, Your Excellency and Father? Our, our differences between religions are necessary? <laughs> uh, of course not. Uh, they, they are a scourge on the human race. Uh, the human race should be entirely submitted to Christ the King, should be entirely uh, within the um, ranks of the Catholic Church. Uh, there, there is a single Savior, there is a single God, and everyone should worship one God and be in his church. So to say that differences are necessary, uh, it's just the same thing that he said, a similar thing that he said in, in that thing that he signed with uh, some sort of imam and, and among the Muslims, that uh, God wants, God wills the differences of religion. And uh, yeah, it's the same thing. It, it's, it's diversity as the God, you know, the, the idol of diversity. 
and uh, it's wonderful that our, our that we have these differences. So the idea of necessity uh, here, uh, you're entirely right, Your Excellency. And so, what makes it necessary? Well, the will of God makes it necessary. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, you have you have essentially the same idea. Uh, the other uh, thing that I note in there is that well, we're all one one big happy family, and uh, if you uh, uh, understand, say, the teaching of uh, the church, how that was reflected in this uh, sacred liturgy, only those who were of the Orthodox faith were, uh, in other words, the true Catholic faith, were considered a, a part of the household, the family. So you had that's reflect, reflected in all the prayers of the church, etc. But now the idea is that, well, uh, everyone is part, everyone is is a famulus or a famula, or if there's some sort of a, a, a neuter or trans term for that, a famulum, I don't know. But uh, that, uh, so the idea is that orthodox belief has nothing to do with being part of the family. Also, the, um, the if you have diversity, if you're worshiping the, the god of diversity, the there you have to have something beyond diversity to unify people. See, so if you uh, if diversity is the norm, there has to be some other linking thing, which certainly will not be the Catholic religion. It will be some sort of uh, you know humanism, uh, humanitarianism, uh, dogmaless humanitarianism, uh, which of course was predicted by uh, Monseigneur de la Suisse in, at the turn of the last century, around 1900, that this is what they intend to do to the Catholic Church, a dogmaless humanitarianism. And that is the, the real invisible God above the diversity God. You know how the Indians in India, they have all sorts of gods, you know, a hierarchy of gods. Well, the, the above diversity is this unifying humanitarianism. And if you don't believe in that, then you're really anathema. You can be as diverse as you want, but you have to believe in the one true God, which is the humanitarian, the dogmaless humanitarianism. And which includes climate, you know, control and you know, climate, uh, doing something about the climate and all of this other stuff that they're coming out with. That's all part of it. The Antichrist needs a, a crisis. And he also needs a unifying principle. So the crisis that they are trying to develop is, of course, the climate crisis. Everybody getting all worked up like that little, how would you say, uh, uh, happy young girl that comes to the, you know, who's an expert, who comes to the uh, to the uh, UN and uh, gives a nasty speech to everybody. But, you know, this is, they, this is all propped up by leftists high, high on the scale of both money and power. This whole thing is is uh, so, and I'm saying that you know, in relation to this, there there is a, it's all part of a scheme to 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 unite the whole world on the principle of dogmaless humanitarianism, and also to excite the world into doing things that whereby people will give up their nations and their freedoms and everything else in order to become one big happy socialist entity under the Antichrist. You have to remember that we are proceeding necessarily or the reign of the Antichrist. And no matter what we do against it, it's going to happen. And not, not that we shouldn't resist it, but it's a historical necessity that the reign of Antichrist come. It's in sacred scripture. 
with the um, along that same line, of course, one thinks of Paul the Sixth's uh, <clears throat> great. Excuse me. One thinks of Paul the Sixth's great uh, regard for the uh, United Nations and uh, his his praise for it. And I always come back to the phrase of the French uh, uh, traditionalist, the Abbe de Nantes, about the must do that uh, M A S D U that that the uh, purpose of the Vatican II Church was to um, uh, inculcate the uh, animation of universal democracy, and that we were supposed to be a part of that. The Pope was supposed to be uh, very much uh, a part of it. And uh, that was the, the message one started to get uh, from Paul VI, and now you get it in spades or worse, I guess in jokers, from that joker Bergoglio, because this is a, a main theme of his. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that that girl looked very happy. Uh, there was a, another golden Trump tweet in which uh, he, he showed the video of her and said, uh, it's a very happy child. She looks like she's going to have a wonderful future. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you know, but you know, she came over on a, a sailboat. Yes. But then the crew had to fly over in order to bring the sailboat back to Sweden, wherever she came from. So all of that horrid gas pouring out of those engines, uh, clogging up the atmosphere. As you, as you said earlier, Your Excellency, empty gestures. Yes. But speaking of a gesture that's not so empty, we have 13 new cardinals created. Uh, and this brings the total that Francis has created on, from 2013 to now at, to 75. He has created 75 cardinals from 50 countries. 15 of which had never been represented in the college before, and the first Scandinavian since the Protestant Revolt. If we look at the numbers since the 2018 consistory, we have 47 by Benedict XVI, 19 by JP II, and this would be 75. So he represents an outright majority, more than Benedict XVI and JP II's appointments combined. Each of his appointments has temporarily increased the number of cardinal electors beyond the set limit of 120, as high as 125 in both 2015 and 2018. The number exceeded 120 for 10 months, the longest such time during Francis's non-reign. If we look at the cardinals that were created, uh, we have three that were uh, non-voting. So an 82-year-old, an 80-year-old, and an 80-year-old. And then the rest had an average age of 66 or so. Now, we obviously can't go through all of them, not only because I lack the pronunciation skills to properly read their names, but because we don't have full dossiers on all of them. But we do have a dossier on Jose Tolentino Calasta de Mendonza who is the vice-rector of the so-called Catholic University of Lisbon. We know a few things about him. One, he wrote the introduction to the Portuguese translation of a book called, I'm going to try to say this with a straight face, Feminist Theology and History. And this was written by someone called Teresa Forcades, whom the BBC calls Europe's most radical nun. In the introduction to this work, 
Tolentino de Mendoza tells the reader that Jesus didn't leave any rules or laws to mankind, an idea that he approvingly applies to Forcatus's critical theology. She reminds us of that which is essential. Jesus of Nazareth did not codify, nor did he establish rules. Jesus lived. That is, he constructed an ethos of relation, somatized the poetry of his message and the visibility of his flesh, expressed his own body as premise. I'll stop, I'll stop for a moment, Your Excellency and Father, and let you jump in if you'd like to. Well, the only thing I can think of is that those who do not believe shall be condemned. Uh, I, I, that sounds like a rule to me. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, um, uh, go now and sin no more. That sounds like a rule. And, uh, you know, various uh, other, I mean, I'd have to go through Unless the Unless you eat of the flesh of uh, uh, the Son of Man, you, you cannot be saved. That, yes. That, that, sounds, yes. that sounds rather like a rule. That's, you yeah, know. And, and, and the man getting uh, thrown out without the wedding garment, I did, that sounds like sort of a non-somatization to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's exclusivity and, and you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not all embracing. You and Father have talked uh, in the past about having a sort of time warp sensibility that you you feel like you're going back to the 60s. And again, I never lived through the 60s. I only hear about it historically from from you and Bishop Dolan and others. But this feels like the 60s to me to, to read something. Jesus didn't leave any rules or laws to mankind. That's yeah. far beyond the 60s. I never heard that in the 60s. <laughs> this is outer space. But it's it's the logical um, uh, outgrowth, if you want to call it logic, of the idea that I that uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament are just like Anderson or Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales, and that it's all just sort of literature and uh, it can be uh, interpreted any way that you want it. There's no historical connection with it. You can't find out the teaching of the historical Jesus. Uh, or the, or the, the Jesus of history is different from the Jesus of faith, etc. So all of the stuff uh, that uh, this um, uh, woman uh, speaks, all of this uh, builds on that, that you can't, uh, that, that there's a total agnosticism about anything in, in history or anything really about the life of our Lord, that it's all sort of made up. Well, in classic modernism, we have these educated sounding terms that don't really mean anything. What is an ethos of relation? What is somatizing the poetry of his message and the visibility of his flesh? Expressed his own body as a premise? I mean, this is this is modernist, typical claptrap. Sick. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that you can put it together, you can take those words and uh, you can jumble them. Uh, you know, he constructed a uh, premise of relation uh, somatized the poetry of uh, his own body in the visibility of the ethos of relation. And it makes just about as much sense. <laughs> you could get a random modernism word generator uh, and you can throw all of this vague stuff in there and it could write a book as good as this Teresa character. Yeah. No, the, uh, whenever they have re recourse to the Greek roots to somatize Soma means gr uh, body in Greek. It, but, you know, when they say somatize, you're so, the average person is supposed to, to you know, sit up and breathe hard. Oh, 
somatize, this person must be an intellectual if she uses the word somatize, because I've never heard it before and I don't know what it means, right? Or body is a premise. The thing is that, what the heck does that mean, premise? You know, no trespassing on the premises. Stay out. <laughs> you know, is that the theology of the body? Well, we're going to get into that in a minute. But the thing is that it's a, a non-standard use of the term, and uh, this is supposed to convey the idea that the person who's spinning this nonsense out is some, some sort of a deep uh, intellectual. All right. Now, that's very typical of modernists, and it's a form of fallacy. Just so, and this is the uh, the um, Dominican Ugon says this. It's a fallacy to try to impress your audience with big words and high-sounding language in order to make your message felt and 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 accepted. That because they regard you as an authority, they will agree with what you're saying. And that's and the, these people, as Father said, this that sentence makes no sense at all to anyone with a brain, but it sounds impressive to people that are relatively simple and reading that stuff. And it sounds impressive, that's all. But if you have any kind of intellectual training, you say that's just a lot of garbage. That's gobbledygook garbage. That's all it is. Yeah. Well, to continue sorting through the garbage, he gave an interview. And regarding Pope Francis's welcoming attitude towards those who are stubbornly living in gravely sinful situations of homosexuality and adultery, Tolentino de Mendoza told the interviewer, no one can be excluded from the love and mercy of Christ. And that experience of mercy has to be taken to everyone, whether they be Christians who are remarried, wounded by disastrous matrimonial experiences, whether it be the reality of new families, whether it be homosexual persons, who in the church must find a space to be heard, a place of welcome and mercy. I think that's an interesting one. Disastrous matrimonial experiences. So they had a bad first encounter. Would that be right, Father? <laughs> We're wondering about the ethos of relation here. I'm still puzzling over that one. <laughs> so <laughs> the... Uh, uh, or you know, disastrous matrimonial experience with some sort of a experience of discerning and accompaniment. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, uh, the is any part of what I read there true, Father or Your Excellency? Yes, it is true. The the homosexuals should be heard in the church, in the confessional. <laughs> That's where they're heard in the church in the confessional. All right. I think you call those uh, broom closets, Your Excellency. In the Novus Ordo? Well, no, usually they serve as broom closets in Novus Ordo churches because, you know, the, what else would you do with something like that except, you know, they're very good for the brooms and whatnot. What we have here is, again, it's more code that um, excluded from the love and mercy of Christ. Yes, of course, no one can be excluded from the love and mercy of Christ. But uh, what uh, we're using for code here is that uh, one has to uh, accept sin that one has to uh, accept adultery and uh, uh, approve it. Uh, one has to accept the uh, uh, disasters in, in matrimony, or one has to accept homosexuality and approve of it. So the idea is that, that uh, these things cannot be reproached, but must be uh, approved of. And so here, the, the modernist code word for this is the love and mercy of Christ. And the true love and mercy of Christ 
involves uh, repentance on the part of the sinner and uh, reform of his life, but there's nothing uh, about that. Am I reading this correctly where he says the reality of new families? Now, he may be talking about the divorced and, and remarried couples, but maybe new families as code for parent one and parent two? New families? Do you, do you read it or that it way? Can, it can mean public? anything. Yeah, it can mean anything. New kinds of families, you know, live-ins, uh, you know, what they call shack-ups and things like that. You just don't know what they mean. So, it go, and again, if you want to read more about this, Novus Ordo Watch uh, has a, a very good briefing on this. Um, more information, in the earlier part of the 2010s, Madonka worked in an LGBT so-called Catholic ministry that served homosexuals who embraced the so-called gay identity but were left to their own spiritual guidance. Regarding the ministry, Mendonca told the Portuguese publication Publico in 2010 that the church isn't a place of fullness, it's a place of searching. Our condition is thirst and desire. It isn't here and now that we realize our dreams. The church is this common road, not exempt from imperfections, open to a kind of progressivity. He added that the church had to welcome people in a way that is unconditional. The Publico article implied that members of the group were continuing to engage in their homosexuality. Hmm. Yeah, well, that, that's really uh, Vatican II, Pilgrim Church. You know, that, that we're uh, on our way to something. We don't have everything. JP II got up and said that in, in uh, Vatican II, that the church has to learn from others. That we don't have the whole thing. You know, that uh, we're, we're on, the, on a learning curve. It's Vatican II. It all goes back to Vatican II. Yeah. And I mean, you know, how many times we heard that about, well, it's a pilgrim church mm -hmm. and that we're, uh, you know, we're on our way, et cetera. And it's code for dogmatic uh, evolution mm -hmm. again. And the idea is that we really can't have any truth here that the church proclaims, whether it comes uh, from faith or morals, that we're all just sort of um, uh, all just sort of like gypsies uh, wandering around. And, uh, you know, we may get to heaven, whatever that may be, or, uh, you know, may turn out to be something else. So it's all, uh, it's again, that, that vague and that uh, imprecise language uh, that they have to use to do away with the essences of things. And, and, and um, the, the fact that dogma and moral principles don't change. So it's the same thing, fullness, partial. We see that in our ecclesiology, uh, et cetera. So uh, it's, it's very much true what His Excellency says. It's all part of it. Your uh, alarms should go off uh, whenever you see language like this about common road. You know, hit the road is what I say. <laughs> Well, as a, as a way to round it out and, and understanding this appointment of, of Francis, there was a retreat which Madonka had, uh, had led, and afterwards Francis thanked him for having shown how the Holy Spirit works in non-believers, in pagans, in people of other religious confessions, and that the Holy Spirit is universal. It is the Spirit of God, which is for everyone. Thank you for this call to open ourselves without fear, without rigidity be pliable to the spirit and not mummified in our structures that enclose us. <laughs> oh boy. So this is the kind of language that 
um, uh, drives your neocons in the Novus Ordo Church uh, sort of crazy, uh, because the obviously it implies something uh, unorthodox, but it's just Vatican II. Well, they're in their they're in their mummified structures. I guess so, right? So we drill down and look at one specific appointment of the 13, but the, the larger narrative is something that I've heard His Excellency speak about in sermons before, that for anyone who's dreaming of some kind of swing uh, to the anti-accommodationist wing, when you've appointed 75 of, of the cardinals, so more than, more than 50%, and that one of them, just one of them is like this, you can guess that more than one is like this, the, the neocons are deluding themselves if they're going to wait for another Bene- great Benedict the Sixteenth. No, it's clear that the next election will uh, make uh, Francis look like St. Pius V. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, 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 to uh, paraphrase this to Lentita Mendoza, that uh, Bergoglio has uh, uh, somatized the poetry of his modernism and the visibility <laughs> of his cardinals. <laughs> Expressed expressed his own empty head as a premise. So this is what you're you're looking forward to, uh, and there's going to be absolutely no shift. It's it's uh, all of these guys um, uh, buy into Vatican II, and uh, they will continue the Francis program one way or another. It'll be very interesting to see who steps out on the balcony the next time. <laughs> I, well, they, they might come out in drag. Oh, <laughs> he steps steps out on the balcony. Uh, I'm, I'm I think back to what His Excellency said at the beginning of our program: this inevitable move towards Antichrist, and you can't do that unless you appoint so-called cardinals that espouse these ridiculous views. Uh, and then, with all of this gender identity business, you you could get somebody who could say, "Today, I, I identify with a woman." You know, you could get Nova Sordo clergy who, who are identifying with a woman today. And, you know, maybe tomorrow might be different. But, uh, you know, that is becoming more and more acceptable. Well, be a, a clever way to get your first female pope, Your Excellency. You get someone in there and then they identify as a woman and then they change their, their name from Francis to Francisca. Yes, the, the, they have, a, you know, an operation or they just identify differently today. And, you know, I, I feel I'm a woman. And there you go. I, I try that in our choir. I try to get some of the basses to identify as tenors. But uh, unfortunately, reality collided with that. And in music, reality still counts. Well, someone who's on the other side of this new appointment would be Cardinal Burke. And much to the rejoicing of the neocons, he does not have an opinion of the Amazon Synod document that is positive. In fact, his exact quote was, in relation to the instruments and laboris that we talked about in our last Francis Watch episode, it cannot be. The document is an apostasy. This cannot become the teaching of the church, and God willing, the whole business will be stopped. Of course, forgetting that if, if the document does become <laughs> the teaching of the church, then the whole business will not have been stopped. And where will he, where will he retreat to then? Well, uh, yeah, who knows? Uh, the problem with Burke and Schneider and, and people like them is that they have not recognized that the problem is Vatican II. 
These people are Vatican II clergy. They uh, agree with Vatican II, and therefore they agree with all of the principles that are generating all of this false theology, the, this false doctrine. So they they are like people trying to to get rid of the weeds in the garden by snipping off the tops. You know, oh, the, we have apostasy. Well, what do you have underneath? What do you have in the root? What do you have in the stem? And the root is Vatican II. For as long as they are are in agreement with Vatican II and accept Vatican II as a legitimate council, you're not going to see anything good come from those men. They will cave, and they will give some sort of interpretation that all of their followers should use, or they will just take refuge in the recognize and resist, that they are the correctors, and they will issue a correction, and that'll be that, we'll move on. And so you have this this church that uh, of correctors, and of course that puts the correctors above the magisterium, which is essentially Protestant. Uh, whereas the Protestants appeal to Scripture above magisterium, the, the, these people are appealing to their own version of tradition above the magisterium. Uh, and so it's essentially a Protestant uh, idea to, to correct the Pope. I've, I've always uh, found it amusing that the uh, slang, I guess, in England is that uh, if you burke an issue, it's to avoid it or you suppress it. And uh, that's certainly what he is doing, because the the uh, gorilla in the room, as it were, is the uh, is Vatican II, and they can't uh, they can't really escape that, as you say. It's it's uh, the source of all their problems, and they still won't admit it. Oh, Father, that's not very sensitive to gorillas. Yeah. <laughs> Especially since we're talking about the Amazon region. Oh well, they're sort of largely somatized those gorillas, so I think they can probably their self-image is pretty good. So <laughs> you also emerge with what I would call a Burke Church, and that is a church that is capable of having apostatical—that means apostasy—apostatical magisterium uh, that that the church can go off the rails. But there is, you know, a cardinal around to say, ah, you know, it's off the rails. Don't pay attention to it. That That is not the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church does not go off the rails dogmatically. Uh, and it is even true that in its non-infallible statements that it can teach nothing that would be contrary to faith or a sin to embrace. Some, some uh, It's part of its indefectibility, just as it cannot give a, an evil discipline. If you are, it, it, we have to give religious assent to what we call non-infallible pontifical statements. That means you accept it. You, you not on the basis of faith, but you accept it on the, the basis of the authority of the, of the office teaching. And that's, that binds under sin. You can't just blow off what they say. But, and so, because that's true, the church cannot hold you to commit a sin. It's impossible that the church, uh, even if it is something erroneous, the error could never be against the faith or morals, something that would be sinful to embrace. It could never teach you something already condemned by the Catholic Church, which would be sinful to embrace. So, as I said in, in one of my articles, you know, they could teach that the moon is made of green cheese, which is obviously wrong. The 
that doesn't, that in no way offends the faith to say that the moon is made of green cheese. But if these people are coming out with apostasies and already the, uh, the adultery that is approved of in, in uh, Amoris Laetitia, this is contrary to morals. Uh, and you, to have a church that is capable of doing that is to destroy the Catholic Church. There's nothing less than that. And this idea of you know, cheerleaders on the side or, or, or referees, let's say, on the side calling out fouls isn't going to restore the indefectibility of the Catholic Church. If you look at all of the apologetics of the Catholic Church in defending, for example, accusations against Honorius, accusations against Liberius, they always say that no matter what you want to say, even if you want to say that they did defect, they did not teach it. They did not teach it to the church. That has I teach apologetics. I teach church history. I see all of these texts. It's always the same thing. They did not teach it. And all these, these Catholic um, church historians, that is Catholic apologetics. And I just said to the seminarians the other day, there was a, a text from Baronius, I believe it was. It was a famous church historian. And he said exactly what I just said. They did not teach it. They were talking about 10th century popes. We were talking about 10th century popes, who, some of whom were immoral. And the point was that although these were immoral men, they never touched doctrine. They never taught anything that was contrary to faith. And that this proves the indefectibility of the church. And I said to them, that statement, if you accept Francis as pope and the Vatican II popes as true popes, is false. It, 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 all the Catholic apologetics crashes down in a minute if you accept those men as true popes. Uh, and they understood that. They saw it in black and white in the book in front of me, and they understood that. And I they, think, yes. I think what's strange about Burke, Your Excellency, is he speaks some of our language in contrast to what we heard from this Portuguese cardinal to be. Burke in this same interview says, heresy is the denial, the knowing and willing denial of a truth of the faith. For instance, the priest Arius, who denied the two natures and one person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So heresy is pointed toward a particular truth that someone denies, whereas apostasy is a general defection from the faith, a going away from Christ in a general way, and the many truths of the faith. You know, yes. This is not modernist speak. This is That's quite clear. Standard Catholic textbook. And, and so, no, he knows. He he. But he's grappling with this idea of keeping Vatican II and, and saving these, these false, false popes. And, you know, if you decide that that's your first premise, I must save Vatican II and I must save the false popes, well, you're getting into just a merry-go-round uh, of theological absurdity. I mean, it's just, you know, you cannot come out with a with a Catholic thought. The only thing you can come out with is an, a, an, an erring church that has referees on the side. You know, like in, in uh, you know, football games and whatnot, you see them with the, uh, and they blow the whistle and, you know. And, and yeah, instead of throwing flags, they throw banners at right, you or right. something. <laughs> that this, and you always need a, a ref. Well, suppose Burke dies tomorrow. Suppose, you know, well, then who's going to, to tell us what we should think? 
I've got to get a new orthodoxy buddy. Right. You know, Burke and Schneider are the, I think, Brandmuller, who's about 110 years old or something. <laughs> the, the, I mean, these are the, the, the refs that are blowing the whistle as if we're supposed to listen to them and not to the Pope of Rome. Yeah, and what it, what it does, too, is, uh, and I pointed out this um, uh, recently in a, a short quidly bit uh, that I did, the blathering of the clams. Uh, what it does is it, from people like Burke and the R&R crowd, uh, the idea is that it, it simply paves the way for the Church of the Antichrist and for the one world religion, because in the practical order, what the Pope says is not binding, and that what the Catholic Church says can be wrong, and that one does not have to follow it. So you can have at a uh, certain level, you can have all sorts of ritual uh, that you like. You can have the uh, traditional Latin mass and all sorts of nice vestments, or you can have the uh, polka masses or the rock and roll masses, or uh, people believing all sorts of different things in what was once called the uh, Catholic Church. But the, the beliefs and the moral principles are uh, really uh, not important as long as one adheres to this, this great uh, humanitarian one-world religion. So uh, to my way of thinking, more and more, uh, Burke and company are just simply paving the way for it in another way. When you put it that way, Father, I, I see him as basically another representation of this Portuguese cardinal-to-be, this idea that we're a pilgrim church on a journey, and sometimes there can be detours, but we can always get back onto the main road as long as you've got an orthodoxy buddy, or as His Excellency says, a ref, to help show you the way back to the road. Um, but Burke is not alone. Someone who we would not consider part of the Burke camp came out against Instrumentum Laboris as well, none other than Cardinal Muller, Gerhard Muller, who was fired by Francis in 2017. He says, the magisterium of the Pope and of the bishops has no authority over the substance of the sacraments. Therefore, no synod, with or without the Pope, and also no ecumenical council or the Pope alone, if he spoke ex cathedra, could make possible the ordination of women as bishop, priest, or deacon. They would stand in contradiction to the defined doctrine of the Church. It would be invalid, he adds. Cardinal Muller calls the upcoming synod a wrecking ball that aims at a restructuring of the universal Church. I have to say, Your Excellency, when Cardinal Muller looks like the bulwark of orthodoxy. <laughs> We're really scraping the bottom of the barrel, I think. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and yet I find no objection to anything that he said in, in, in terms of what we believe as Catholics. It's true that the magisterium of the Pope and of the bishops has no authority over the substance of the sacraments. It's true that no synod with or without the Pope, no ecumenical council of the Pope alone, if he spoke ex cathedra, could make possible the ordination of women as bishop, priest, or deacon. The fact that he's coming out so, so hard, doesn't that seem to indicate he's expecting something? Well, I would say, you know, just getting on the modernist uh, plane, so to speak, there's no, to my knowledge, infallible, you know, counsel or, or infallible statement that women cannot be ordained. Do you know of anything, Father Chicada? No, no. No, it's, it, it's just it, it was uh, simply always excluded 
by the tradition of the church. Right. It's just the constant practice of the church. There was some obscure council someplace in the Middle Ages that uh, mentioned it, you know, as something you shouldn't do. Uh, and uh, but there, there is no nothing defined or even I don't. It's not even mentioned even in what you would call pontifical doctrine. Uh, you know, pontifical magisterium uh, that this is something that cannot be done. Is it excluded by by the idea, Your Excellency, that we all know that two plus two equals four, and so it doesn't need to be mentioned? Yes, it is something so absurd that the church never bothered, we might say, to define it. It's the fact that murder is immoral. You will look through all of the councils of the church and you will not find a, a, a statement, some sort of authoritative statement to say that murder is immoral. This is something that no one ever challenged, right? And it is the constant teaching and preaching of the Catholic Church, which makes it part of the universal ordinary magisterium. Practically all of the morals of the Catholic Church come from universal ordinary magisterium. That is, the Church has always said it. The Church universally preaches it. it. It's just part of Catholic doctrine. And the same is true of excluding females from the, the, uh, from the priesthood. You know? And you get you know, things maybe uh, you know, in, in theologians that you have to be a male in order to be. But you know, there's no grand document. And you know, if they're going to be on a on a on a pilgrim, you know, a pilgrimage, that that opens up all sorts of evolution of dogma, as Father said. I mean, what they said yesterday uh, doesn't 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 necessarily apply today. Uh, they, I mean, they have trashed so many dogmas of the past with historicism. Well, that's the way they saw it then. You know, in the Middle Ages, the women were all you know put down. And they would never think of that, but we we have learned more now, see, and and, and we understand better. And so th- that is the way they deal with all of that structure of Catholic dogma up to Vatican II. They historicize it, and it all turns into jello. And so, you know, for Mueller to come in and, you know, sound the horn of rigidity, it sounds like, you know, he, this is, you know, he's as rigid as rigid could be. That not even an infallible statement of the Pope could change it. The the uh, is is a little ridiculous in you know for someone who is uh, has bought into all of the evolution of dogma. Why is he saying this? Why can't we evolve this too? Why can't this become something else? What what occurred what occurred to me is that um, maybe he is uh, uh, campaigning for Pope. That in other words, somehow he is now positioning himself as uh, you know being a conservative on these issues, even though he denies what transubstantiation and the virgin birth, but still he qualifies somehow as a uh, conservative. Uh, maybe that's part of it. Mm-hmm. It's possible, but with this College of Cardinals, I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think so either. I don't. I don't see him as a dark horse candidate, uh, Father. I mean, the only thing that that Burke and company could do is declare the sea vacant and have a conclave. That's otherwise they are just going to get caught in the current 
uh, and the rapids, we might say, of this Amazonian synod. And they will just become, you know, artifacts of, of an ancient church that, that people don't pay attention to. Yes, but as with the revolution here in France, Your Excellency, they will have to swear allegiance to Vatican II. Otherwise, they cannot receive their crown. Yes. Well, they, you know, don't forget, Burke, Burke, Burke is slightly younger than I am. I know exactly. And, and Father Chicot is probably Father Chicot's age. We know where he came from, the, the very traditional upbringing. Then he went through the modernist seminary. And there he had to make his choice between modernism and Catholicism, and he chose modernism, but he chose conservative modernism. This is what we have in Burke. And isn't that what, you know, I mean, how many did we know like that? Of course. Of and course. some bishops, I know a few of them I can mention, and, and, uh, that, uh, and they eventually just went down the modernist path. So this is, is, is the right wing of modernism. It is not Catholicism. It is the right wing of modernism. And, and Catholicism is, by its very nature, intolerant of heresy and apostasy to such an extent that it cannot live in the same house with heretics and apostates, especially if they claim to be popes. Also, by, by their nature, Having made that choice, uh, they're sold men. They're company men. They're they're uh, they're not going to call. I don't think any conclaves on their own, no matter what Francis does. Uh, that they have bought in too much to the uh, uh, conservative reading of the Vatican II system that everything is just just uh, uh, basically peachy, and that uh, you know there there there's some sort of bad interpretation that we have to approach with the right sort of um, hermeneutic or ethos of relativity or whatever they're going to talk about. You have to about. somatize it. You have to somatize, somatize it. it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess you somatize with, with that big cop of mania uh, that you are. But the... <laughs> Cardinal Burke has done a good deal of somatization. Oh, he's, he's somatized all over the place. So uh, the... Uh, but they bought into it, and uh, <laughs> we know the mentality. They're not going to go anywhere. They're not right. going to go anywhere and do anything, uh, because that would uh, overturn uh, what they have uh, what they have have stood for, and overturn the choice that they have made. I don't see that happening. Yeah, we we all had that crossroads in the 1960s and 70s. We all faced it, whether to fight or to stay. And they stayed, and they it developed some sort of hermeneutic, that is, interpretation of Vatican II that they are satisfied with. And, but the, Francis has burst their bubble, and they're trying to deal with it. But they are company men. They would never have made it to cardinal under the pontificates of Paul VI, John Paul II, and Francis, and Ratzinger and Francis, if they had been bucking Vatican II and all of the apostasy and heresy of Vatican II. They never would have made it. And so they are, yeah, they're, they're company men who are, are you know, upset by what's going on because it doesn't fit into their, to, to their mold that they have made of Vatican II. Yeah, it's, it's one thing if it's, if it's uh, uh, sort, sort of subtle and can be contained well, you know, JP2 made this remark, or, you know, he talked about uh, a primal nudity, you know, in, in uh, the 
in his his conferences to those old Italian ladies in St. Peter's Square for, you know, like three or four years or something. Uh, but, uh, you know, OK, well, that's, uh, you know, let let uh, uh, Votilla be Votilla and let Reagan be Reagan. So but it doesn't really uh, affect them. But if you have this this madman uh, who is saying all of these crazy things out loud and they're uh, n- uh not simply being repeated reported by the press, but where there's there's a clack, there's a faction and everything that continues to pr- promote these ideas, as as uh, the uh, as modernist Richard Rohr said um, once after the Who Am I to Judge remark, the bell cannot be unrung. So uh, I mean, with with uh, Bergoglio, the bell cannot be unrung, and people like. Um, uh, Cardinal Burke are in a really, as they would say, they, he's really in a bad place. <laughs> the only thing that can ring now is your hand. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah that's right. That was rather, that was rather Chikata-esque of you, yeah. Your Excellency. <laughs> well, I have a good teacher. You know, he comes down and gives us these things at the table. <laughs> well, speaking of someone who is not uh, considered a company man, Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, would he have accepted a speaker of the theology of the body at the Angelus press conference, uh, your your excellency. What? No, I talked to him about that in 1980, and he was grossly scandalized by the theology of the body. That's when Paul uh, John Paul II was talking about it, and he said it's scandalous what he's doing. That's a personal conversation that I had with Archbishop Lefebvre. Uh, so you know, no, they have they have gone astray, but they have gone astray in a way by his instructions. By his side, they have taken his leftist, well, left side, let's say, left side, which is uh, do whatever is needed in order to make accommodation to the Vatican in order to gain approval. That's, that's his left side. They have followed that, and they have neglected his right side, which is right in both cases, namely uh, the heck with them, they're modernists, and we're going to continue with the Catholic faith, uh, come what may. And we see both of those sides in him, and they have sided with that. And the resistance has gone the other way, uh, that we're going to uh, not bother with the modernists. And But, but the, he was two people in that sense, and, and you, can, you could make a side-by-side comparison, which I did uh, once, but and mostly his left side was in his actions. His words were almost always on the right side, but his actions were always left side, and actions speak louder than words, almost always, uh, not always left side, but almost always. For example, giving the excoriating speech at the 1988 uh, consecrations, and then saying later to the journalists, well, don't worry, in a few years, everything will be ironed out. For, for those who are not familiar with this upcoming conference, it'll take place October 4 through 6, and the speaker who will be coming, Reverend Sean Kilcally, who's a Novus Ordo Presbyter, and he teaches the theology of the body, he will be giving a talk on pornographic addiction. So obviously that is an important topic that needs to be covered, but there are two problems. One. The the SSPX are inviting a Novus Ordo presbyter, so someone who's not a valid priest, to come address them, and who 
is a proponent of theology of the body, which, as we've just heard His Excellency say, is something that the Archbishop never accepted. What do you make of this, Father Chivata? Well, uh, you know, as uh, Bishop Sanborn says, yes, it's uh, another step to the left. It's another um, degree or so in boiling the frog uh, in in several senses when you refer to the Society of St. Pius X, that, that people get used to the idea of the, that uh, one can get these these uh, wonderful ideas and uh, advice from the Vatican II Church, A, and B, from someone who is a Novus Ordo Presbyter, uh, that uh, this is also an implicit approval of uh, the notion that, uh, you know, he is a, a, a priest and that the modern sacraments are just fine, just peachy. Uh, and, and uh, they are valid, so it's 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 another uh, it's another step toward it, and it's part of a uh, I think a consistent program that uh, has been going on for several years. You will notice that in the Angelus, for instance, uh, or in the Port Latine, which is the uh, French uh, one of the French Society of Saint Pius the Tenth cites that, uh, yeah, there will be articles criticizing modernism in the new church, but there will also be articles now praising uh, uh, people in the modern church, uh, different uh, uh, personages, uh, different bishops, etc. You didn't see that before, and that's a, uh, that's a development that is, um, uh, that is ha, has been continuing for I think about ten years now. So it is that that uh, it's they're getting people uh, used to that idea of being part of the new church. It may uh, you know take a while for that to come about entirely in the practical order, and I'm sure it will. They're doing it a, a degree at a time, but it's the direction in which they're going. I mean, if you talk about the Pilgrim Church, this is the uh, Pilgrim Society of St. Pius X, and uh, getting back uh, in uh, um, communion with and uh, joining their people to the One World Church that Bergoglio is uh, in the process of creating. Archbishop Lefebvre never settled the question of whether the Novus Ordo was Catholicism or not. Never did. And acted in an ambivalent manner toward it. Sometimes you would conclude that it was not Catholic. Other times you would say it is Catholic. And that's what they're suffering from, clearly. Uh, so uh, the, the, another thing is that if you invite somebody in, that there's approval not only of his ordination, but also approval of him as a person, you might say, and, and his background and his, you know, if I invited a Protestant minister here to speak about sacred scripture or something like that, there's an approval there. And, and uh, that, that's something that, that is scandalous. Uh, and, and thirdly, there is no need to have a retreat about uh, addiction to pornography. It's known as the, the way to, to break it is by prayer and fasting. It's very simple, and it's as old as the hills. All you have to do is read any spiritual author. It's just a habit of mortal sin, prayer and fasting, and get rid of the occasions. That's all you need to know. A few words, one sentence. You don't need some expert 
on, on the physiology of the body to tell you how to avoid those things. It's just a, a habit of being dirty, and you have to stop being dirty, period. So it has nothing to do with somatization, your no, excellency? No, and this, no, there's no somatization here. No, I mean, you know, what, what is this? This is modernist stuff, you know, the addiction, as if it's some sort of disease. It's not a disease. It happens to be moral decadence. That's what it is, pure and simple. In addition to this, we have the so-called bishop of uh, Freiburg giving anniversary permission, shall we say, Your Excellency and Father. November the 1st, 1970 is the official founding of the Society of St. Pius X, uh, which, again, Father Chicada has pointed out, is somewhat akin to the Sacred Heart Auto League. And they're going to be celebrating this on November the 1st. And interestingly, this uh, Novus Order Ordinary has given permission for this. Uh, the Ordinary's permission to celebrate the SSPX anniversary extends to the Little Church of Notre Dame de Bouguillon and to the Parish Church of St. Maurice in Fribourg. Morrod emphasized, however, that the diocese does not condone or rejoice in this Lefebvreist anniversary because the division between the SSPX and the Catholic Church is not a joy. Novus Ordo Watch remarked, apparently, his Pope thinks differently about the Protestant Reformation, which he celebrated with Swedish Lutherans in 2016. So what do you make of this? Again, we've got a Novus Ordo speaker in Kansas City, and we've got use of the Novus Ordo churches in Freiburg. It's, I wouldn't say a full court press, but at least a partial court press, it seems. Well, it reminds me of the sinking of the Titanic. There is, you're pointing out things that, that you know, are analogous to the various compartments of the Titanic filling up with water as it, it makes its plunge into the bottom of the ocean. Uh, you know, oh, there's this, this one over here, and well, now, now that one's filled, and gradually all this water is coming in, and anyone with a brain is getting off the ship and, and moving away from it, lest they get taken in by the plunge and the suction. But, you know, there's a lot of people still playing cards, as, as that happened on the Titanic, and, and the band is still playing and whatnot. And the thing is just going to go right down to the ocean shortly. I mean, th this is what it is. You're going to see more and more of this stuff. And so, you know, it's what else is new? You know, is, did the sun rise this morning? And if, if you're operating in the in a ch uh, church in the Diocese of Freiburg, you're certainly not going to be very forthright when it comes to denouncing modernism, right? Because that, that again... Uh, the idea is the nature of it is that uh, the diocese is doing something nice for you, and then in, uh, uh, the trade-off is 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 that in return you make nice to them. And the conclusion is that modernism really does not need to uh, be denounced; that it's extreme to do that, and uh, that it's it's uh, a trade-off that we're working on here. So again, you have the sold men. Uh, phenomenon, that your silence is bought by nonsense like this. Well, on, on, a, on a final note, Your Excellency and Father, I, I thought, Father Chikata, you might note that at Purdue University, they now offer confession on the go. You can get into a golf cart with the, the chaplain there at Purdue and go to confession. One of the students had remarked that it was a little terrifying at first. Uh, to be on the golf cart and having to recite his sins, but he said it was a 
good way to get spiritually refreshed. So I don't know if you plan to introduce Confessions on the Go at St. Gertrude's, because it is in Indiana now, which is right next to Ohio. You'll have to keep up with the Joneses. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Confessions on the golf court. Well, I mean, some people do treat golf as a religion. <laughs> you know, my my sister famously went to a uh, uh, Novus Ordo wake at a... Uh, funeral home and she went down uh went to kneel at the casket to say some prayers and she looks at the guy in the casket and he's uh holding a golf club uh and and he's actually holding a golf club as if he's about to hit a, a golf ball and my father um being the golfer knowing all the tricks for uh, golfing said well if he was dead at least he managed to keep his left arm stiff <laughs> I'm reminded of all the sermons in which Bishop Sanborn talks about, you know, these Novus Ordo eulogies in which so-and-so is playing golf with our Lord, etc. It seems appropriate. So it's a a corollary. So you can get prepared for your your golf casket by going to Confessions on the Go in the golf cart. And and you could confess all of the bad shots that you made in the past. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, how many times you went into the sand pit? Things like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That my life hasn't been up to par as it were. You know. <laughs> I knew we were going to get something. <laughs> yeah, of course you're going to get something. Well, and, and, and with that segue, uh, Your Excellency, can you tell us what's going on in the seminary? Well, we are officially... I know at, you can't say that nothing's going on. No, we, we just started the new year. So that, that's... Uh, and we are officially at capacity. That is, with 13 seminarians... However, only 11 are here because the, the one is from Brazil and he's striving to get his visa. Uh, and the uh, other is in France recovering from uh, some ailment that is very mysterious. Nobody knows what it is, but it's setting him back a great deal. He is on the mend, though. And uh, so so we have 11, in fact, here. And um uh, so they're all doing well. Uh, we um, uh, we unfortunately lost one this year. Uh, he decided not to pursue the priesthood, and he would have been a subdeacon at the end of this year, and he would have been ordained in 2021. But that was not meant to be, so uh, we're kind of sad about that because I was hoping that he could do some work in England, as a matter of fact. And... Uh, so, uh, but that happens, you know, that's the purpose of the seminary is not only to pass on people who are qualified, but also to make uh, religious and, and ecclesiastical life apparent to them and uh, give them the chance to, to decide yes or no. And, and, and so the, the seminary is not failing when that happens because it has shown them what they have to do. And if they want to do it, they can. If they don't, they don't. It's too bad that marriage doesn't have a seven-year preparatory, <laughs> you know, because you, you really taste what, what you're going to be doing when you're a priest for, for all these years. Whereas in marriage, you might have you know, six months of, of uh, love and all sorts of emotions and everything, and then you jump in, and, <laughs> and then, then many times the trouble starts because you were a little blinded, and even a lot. Uh, by emotion and and passion, so uh, the 
So it's too bad that something like that doesn't exist for marriage, too. I'm reminded of Chesterton's quote, uh, Your Excellency, that the success of the marriage usually begins after the failure of the honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that there, there, there's, <laughs> there's another saying that um, the uh, procedure is that for marriage, it goes from friendship to courtship to battleship. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, but you know, we we're pleased with our group, and uh, so um, uh, we're doing our job. The seminary is functioning nicely. We are going to start a building fund because we are anticipating a a room problem down the line. Uh, we always have, you know, there's always attrition and, you know, one or two leave or so every year, but, uh, it, it's getting worse and worse as we're, we're building up more and more to that capacity. So we either have to build here or else we have to buy elsewhere and move the seminary, which is not a pleasant thought for me, but it, the problem is that you can buy for about half the price of what you can build for. And, uh, and when you think of, you know, if we were to, we could use a building that's about 50,000 square feet. Right now we're in about 24,000 square feet. And to build 50,000 square feet today would, would be probably $8 million. Uh, the, the, we just got a quote for 9,000 square feet for a school, and it was uh, $4 million for a simple school, uh, 9,000 square feet. $4 million. So just imagine what they would say for 50,000 square feet. Uh, so uh, Dubai is much better, but it involves moving the seminary, which doesn't make me very happy. Uh, but if we were to put up even 10,000 square feet to, to increase the seminary, uh, that would be easily four to $5 million. So that's what we're facing. But either I have to expand the seminary or we're going to start turning down seminarians. Something's got to give, but it's getting to that point. So I am going to launch a building fund. I'm hoping to raise $2 million. Well, would you like to make a donation? Yes, yes. Uh, always, Your Excellency. <laughs> I would encourage our listeners to both pray for the possibility of a, a good location or, or for the funds to be raised and also to send in uh, some funds. You are not starting up a building fund up north, are you, Father Chicago? Well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> now that His Excellency mentioned it, um, no, uh, uh, I do have the idea, and we've been talking actually about this recently, with um, uh, eventually ordination of seminarians, maybe to expand some of the facilities here, uh, sort of modestly expand the um, some of the residential facilities, and we have some um, I think some good and some practical ideas for that. You can shut down the school for lack of funds, but then spend $4 million on renovating the rectories. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Susan from the parish council would be very ha happy, I think. I always say that I'm waiting for that big check from Bill and Melinda Gates that never seems, never seems to come. Um, no. um, the, uh, oh, a number of things have been going on here. We, um, I had our parish picnic, which gets better, um, uh, seems to get better every year. Uh, the, 
uh, it's over at Sharon Woods Park, and I always find found it somewhat ironic that they're the two picnic areas that we've been assigned uh, every year for uh, maybe the pr- uh, past twenty five years have been either Cardinal Crest or Council Bluff. <laughs> so, <laughs> but in any event, uh, in the uh, it gets very big, and it's a very big social occasion every year. Our choir season has uh, started, uh, and we have a larger men's section in the choir. That is to say, more men in the choir, not fatter men. <laughs> and uh, uh, the... Um, I'm just scheduled uh, my uh, B weeks for the seminary. That's to say the weeks when I go down to teach uh, the seminary. And I'll be going down the first time in October uh, to teach. I'll teach canon law and um, uh, uh, course on liturgy again this year. Uh, then uh, the big event at the beginning of October is Rosary Sunday when we have Rosary procession. and we. We traditionally have a breakfast and then a speaker in, and this year's speaker will be uh, newly ordained Father Caleb Sons, uh, who was uh, ordained this past summer at Most Holy Trinity Seminary, and he's going to come in and uh, uh, tell us about his uh, uh, his life story, his his journey to the uh, priesthood. And people always find that very different, uh, very um, uh, very interesting. Priests have done it. Uh, over the years, with a great deal of success, Father uh, Beden Kamaki from Nigeria, Father uh, Vili Letaranta, etc., uh, Father Julian Larrabee, and people always find that the the, the personal account of one's gen, uh, journey to the priesthood to be uh, quite quite interesting and to be quite encouraging. So we're uh, definitely looking forward to that. Will you be serving gumbo and crawfish to help him feel at home, uh, Father? Maybe fire mush. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, uh, Your Excellency and Father, thank you for your time. And we will pray for both of your uh, endeavors and your various apostolates. And we look forward to another installment of Francis Watch to help inform people about the reality of Catholic teaching as opposed to the hot air that emanates from the so-called apostolic palace these days. Thank you, Father. And thank you, Your Excellency. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.